Take your Bibles this morning and turn to Psalm chapter 2. As promised, we're going to take a break from Romans and go to Psalms. As you're turning to Psalm chapter 2, I would like to ask this question this morning. What do these three things have in common? Are you ready? Some of them I've experienced lately. Some of them have been a few years, but either one. Taking off in an airplane, right? Kind of brace yourselves, right? Your stomach's a little. Wondering what those sounds are and if they're normal. Standing next to your wife as she delivers your firstborn. Again, wondering if those sounds are normal, right? (laughs) Sitting in your car as you watch the officer walk up to your vehicle in the rear view mirror. Again, wondering if those sounds are normal. No, it's really not sounds. And some of you who think, uh, well, I control the checkbook in our house, it must be all three of those, I'm pretty sure, are relatively expensive, It's not that either. All these things, all these situations remind us that we ultimately are not in charge, right? Rather, these are moments where others take the reins of our life and remind us that we're not in charge. One's a captain, another a doctor, another a police officer. Well, Psalm 2 announces in greater detail and more vivid language that we are not in charge. It announces it any, uh, much louder than any airline safety speech in the PA system, threatening oxygen masks to fall down over your head and wondering if you're really going to see if those seat cushions float. <laughs> right? It sobers us more deeply than the hospital delivery room, and it arrests our attention, pun intended, to a greater degree than those mocking blue and red flashing lights. Psalm 2 is perhaps the most concise declaration of warning found in, in all of Scripture in one poetic form, a warning to submit to God's authority personified by his Son, Jesus Christ. You see, Psalm 2 declares in no uncertain terms that Jesus, God's son, is in charge. And it gives us a great portrait of divine authority. So let's read together Excuse me, Psalm chapter 2, and then we'll look at three simple things this morning in our short time together. Why are the nations in an uproar and the people devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. We have a very different picture of he who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy hill, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Verse 8, ask of me and I will surely give the nations your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and you shall shatter them like earthenware. Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship 
the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that he uh, not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. So quite a mouthful this morning to tackle. But remember that God, Son, Jesus, is in charge. And we're going to look, first of all, at the challengers to the one who's in charge. Then we're going to look at the characteristics. So the challengers of the one who's in charge, the characteristics of the one who is in charge. And then finally, the conduct. The conduct towards the one in charge. Pastor Kent last week preached on Psalm chapter 1. And as we look at Psalm 2, I want us to consider briefly the, the relationship with Psalm 1. Psalm 2 really gives us a very different focus than Psalm 1. Psalm 1 focuses on the righteous one. Remember Pastor Kent match, uh, mentioning that last week? And there is a very different focus in Psalm 2. It focuses on the group of the wicked. Psalm 1, the blessed man. Psalm 2, we have the entire nations in an uproar in verse 1. We have one man meditating on God's law in Psalm 1. And we have people groups, entire nations, meditating, plotting against one to overthrow God's law. We have a firmly planted tree kind of man, right? Bearing fruit and secure in Psalm 1. And in Psalm 2, we have chaos. We have nations in uproar. And we, we have people seeking a way to escape. In Psalm 1, God knows the way of the righteous man, doesn't he? But in Psalm 2, we see a God who laughs, scoffs, and threatens the wicked nations. So Psalm 1 really assumes the reader to be the righteous one. Psalm 2 answers the question, what, does the, what, what becomes of the wicked? Right? It, it barely, Psalm 1 barely really mentions the wicked. Remember Pastor Kent last week saying, well, we're going to focus on the righteous one because that's what the psalm focuses on. And Psalm 2 then picks up where Psalm 1 leads off, leaves off and does answer the question, what becomes of the wicked? And, and, and for you and for me, how does this apply to us? What really is our response as the righteous one when we are surrounded by nations that are plotting, meditating, devising to rebel against God of heaven? So let's look at greater detail at these wicked ones. And let's look at the challengers to the one who is in charge. First of all, notice their thinking. These nations are in an uproar and they are devising, they are plotting. And this happens to be, just happens to be, the same Hebrew word of Psalm 1. The man who's meditating Day and night, the man who delights in the law, he is meditating, he is plotting, he is thinking on God's law. Well, these nations, these wicked ones, are thinking, they're plotting, they're, they're meditating on scheming to overthrow God. And they're scheming on vain 
things, our psalmist says. These are things that are empty, worthless. Think of Ecclesiastes. They're useless. They're nothing. You know, the world often promises a great deal, doesn't it? Doesn't it? As they gather together and as they conjure up all these amazing ideas and all these self-fulfilling destinies, the psalmist kind of wipes it all away and says, no, if they are not with God, they are against God. No, their ideas ultimately, if they're against God, will fail. Their ideas ultimately are empty, vanity, useless. By contrast, in Psalm 1, the object of the righteous man's thoughts are God's law. Pastor Ken alluded to Psalm 19 this morning where the heavens declare the glory of God and in the next stanza, the psalmist cries out and says, and so love the law of the Lord because it is perfect. It restores the soul. It is sure, making wise the simple. It is pure, enlightening the eyes. It is clean. It is true. It is sweeter than honey. We don't have useless, vain things to think about as believers in Jesus Christ. We just don't. The world may scoff. The world may, the world may hesitate and do a double take and say, you really arrange your life around a book? My friends, anything else is just plain empty and vain. And so this morning, the psalmist clears all the clutter that could potentially be in your life. And says there's one thing and one thing alone. Love the law and the Lord of the law. To say it in, in Psalm-esque terms. So the nations are plotting and the object of their thinking is useless. It's vanity. And ours is not. Ours is one of great comfort and eternal gold and silver and sweeter than honey. And so not only do they have the, the not only do they have this thinking, but what is the result of their thinking? Why are the nations in an uproar, a rebellion, a stirring, a restlessness, a rage? I had a teen walk into Sunday school this morning when I asked how they were doing, and they said, I had insomnia yesterday, last night. I didn't know teams could have insomnia. I'm not even sure I exactly know exactly what all insomnia is, but I know I've never really experienced it. I I could sleep pretty well. My friends, the world has insomnia like no other. They are restless. They are raging. That is the result of this empty thinking. That is the result of this empty pursuit. And I want you just, again, as we kind of look at Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, and we see the the challengers and their thinking in Psalm 2, consider Psalm 1 and consider the man who is planted. He has a delight, and his delight is in the law of the Lord. That, that, That just takes away this restlessness, doesn't it? There's delight. He has stability. He meditates day and night. There's nothing that wavers him. There's nothing that stops him. He has confidence. He is like a tree planted. And he has success. All that he does prospers. 
The nations that rage against God can't claim that. In fact, all they can claim, is, as a teen put it this morning, insomnia. Rage, restlessness, pursuing one thing after another, ultimately never finding anything that satisfies or gives rest. So simply, uh, this morning, what do you think about? The challengers have something that they think about. The challengers to God, to the one who's in charge. Theirs is empty. Theirs is pointless. Theirs is useless. My friends, what keeps you up at night? What wakes you up in the morning? Oh, that would be our testimony like Psalm 19. That our delight would be in the perfect law of the Lord and that we would know his testimonies to be sure. You know, so what you think about is what you speak about. Look at uh, verse 2. He says, The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together. They are arranging themselves and speaking to one another words that ultimately are, are revealing their thinking. Jesus puts it this way, right? For out of the abundance of the heart, what? The mouth speaks. So what you think about is naturally what you're going to talk about. And what you talk about is naturally what you're going to do. So teenager, that, that lunch table discussion doesn't just have nothing to do with who you are and what you're going to do. What you put your earbuds in and what you turn on and what you hear is what you're going to talk about. It's what you're going to do. What you read. It's what ultimately you're going to do. And we see that here in uh, verse 3. They say, let us tear their fetters apart. Who are they talking about? They're talking about the Lord and his anointed. And we'll investigate that later, but we know for sure because of all the New Testament parallels, that this is talking about Jesus Christ. That's why the NASB takes the, uh, takes the, the privilege of, of going ahead and capitalizing the A. It's the Lord's anointed, God and his son. And so what are they doing? These wicked, these challengers to the one in charge, literally see uh, a figuratively in the psalm because uh, it, as we talked about today, we have genres, and this is a poetic genre, and so it's, it's very picturesque in what it says. And so it's not that they're literally uh, 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 handcuffed or tied together or bound. That's what these words mean, fettered and corded. They don't have ropes around them. They're not, they're not literally that way, but they see themselves spiritually that way to God. And they want to burst apart and free themselves from the God who's in charge and from his anointed, his son. This word uh, fetter and cord, they both conjure up ideas of, of, of an of a animal being yoked to a plow or a prisoner being chained in a dungeon. And that is what they feel because of their rebellion. And that is what their thinking and their speech ultimately act them or cause them to do, cause them to act. Wanting to remove themselves from God and from the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't, we're not going to turn there, but 
kind of cross-reference that in your mind to what pastor has been preaching in Romans, in Romans chapter 1. And how they want to suppress the truth, the unrighteous, the wicked, the same group of people. They want to, they want to, they knew God, but they chose not to honor God in Romans chapter 1. And so that's a New Testament parallel for sure. And so we have an illustration, I think, this morning of a group of people that look God in the face, kind of like my two-year-old will sometimes look me in the face and try to swing at me when she doesn't get her way. She's only done that a few times. I think she's only done that once, actually. But how silly is it? I'm a little shy of 200 pounds. Hopefully a lot shy. I haven't weighed myself in a while. It's not about me this morning. I'm a little, I'm, I'm much bigger than she is. I'm taller and I'm stronger. She can't even reach me but yet she'll swat at me. My friends, that is what the nations are doing with God. They are raising their fist to God. And we'll see here, he sits on his throne and in response, he just has to laugh. It's just crazy. It's just crazy. So we have this illustration of a raised fist to God. The challengers, their thinking, their speech, their actions, And so now let's look at the characteristics of the one who is in charge. The characteristics. First of all, he laughs at this response. This isn't a laugh like, ha ha. This is funny. I think this is an outburst of, of disgust. An outburst of, that's ridiculous. It is, it, is, it is the psalmist trying to communicate in human terms just how crazy it is for one, let alone an entire nation, let alone the entire world group of nations to gather together and to counsel together and to commit together to raise their fist to God. And psalmist just says, it's like a two-year-old trying to swat at his, da- at his or her daddy. It's just insane. And we know that it's not a funny matter, it's not a laughing matter, because he soon will speak to them in his anger. And he will terrify them. He will set the record straight. That's what Matt gave a testimony about what he learned today in GLBI class. He will set the record straight. And so one of the characteristics that we see is we know that God is in control. He is not threatened. You and I, I think if I, you know, if you guys wanted to kind of like just as one group come and lynch me and tar me and throw me out into 306 and watch me get ran over, I would be pretty helpless and I would be scared. I would run away from you. I would get my daughter, my wife, and I'd run from you. You're a scary group of people. You're beautiful. But if you all got together and wanted to hurt me, I would be able to do nothing, let alone nations. Isn't that an intimidating thought? I think it does intimidate us as Christians, doesn't it? It intimidates a mom and a dad when their child says, you know what, mom, dad, I want to I think about becoming a pastor or a missionary. And right away, what does mom think about? I hope he's not called to a place that's dangerous. Right? People intimidate us. Groups of people intimidate us but not God. 
but not God. In fact, one of the cross-references that we're not going to have time to investigate is in Acts chapter 4, where it's quoted, where where Psalm 2 is quoted. And ultimately, the whole point of the quote in Acts chapter 4, excuse me, Acts chapter 4 is you have Peter and John and they just got arrested because they were doing miraculous signs in the name of Jesus Christ. There's a song about that in junior church, Mr. Matt, hope you know it, all right? And, uh, and, 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 and it's a crazy time. Jesus was just crucified. He was just risen. He just left them. And the same Christ that was crucified, that the entire world is against. Now the church has to navigate and figure out how in the world can I express my faith and live my faith in this kind of environment. And Peter goes all the way back to Psalm chapter 2. And he says, God had a plan with Christ's crucifixion. Here it is. And one day he will reign, but in the meantime, take comfort, take courage, and be bold. Because the people, no matter how many, are nothing compared to God. We say at Grace Bible Day Camp, God always wins. And so it's a simple truth, but a truth that resounds in Psalm chapter 2. So he's in control and he has a plan, his plan. But as for me, verse 6, I have installed my king. And we have to remember, we've, we've actually had a great kind of segue in terms of how do I understand something in a different dispensation and apply it today? How do I understand the, the genre and the literature of, 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 of a poetic psalm? And how do I take it into today and, 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 and live it and apply it? Well, here, this is, a, this is a, what theologians call a royal psalm. Okay? It's not just a royal psalm, but, but they'll classify it as a royal psalm. And this is, a, this is a psalm that was sung when there was a coronation, when there was the installation of a new king. This is how it was used. And so, and so the court and everyone would get together and it would be a great time. Excuse me, a great time of, of, uh, uh, of, of celebration because a new king would be installed. It was a new day, a new chapter. We can kind of appreciate that, right? Even with our leadership as a country. So we can understand how exciting that is. But my friends, there's something infinitely greater than the installation of an earthly king like David. There's the installation of the king of heaven, Jesus Christ, Lord of lords and king of kings. And God has a plan. God has a plan. His plan is that he would be installed and no one would stop him. The nations can rage. They can be all together with their fists towards God, but God sits in heaven and he laughs because his plan is moving forward. My friends, how do you interact with the reality that God's plan is moving forward in your life? How do you do that? Just give up? When something hits you, you just hang your head? When people, when people talk about God in a way that's not friendly, do you just shy? 
Friends, God's plan is moving forward, and our response is for us to worship. Look at verse 6. He says, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, the place of worship for those in that dispensation. He will be worshipped. The rebels always have plans that threaten God's plan, but God's plan remains. It remains. And so he is in control. He has a plan. It was another characteristic of the one who's in charge. He has divine authority. Look at verse 7. This is God, the God of heaven saying, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. Again, we're, we're, we're talking in, 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 in anthropomorphic terminology and in, in humanistic terminology and human terminology, human character traits to the God of heaven. And he says, I will surely tell the decree. And so theologians wrestle with this decree. Does that mean that there's a lot of temporal language, language in this psalm? He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Begotten is another temporal kind of word, or it can be, right? Abraham begot Isaac. And so that means that there was a beginning. And so, does, so there's a lot of wrestling that goes on in, in this passage. But the New Testament so clarifies it for us. It's so beautiful. John actually takes this word, begotten, he takes this concept of, of temporal, and he explains it's not, it's, not the, it's not the physical relationship between a father and a son and at its start. In other words, Abraham begot Isaac. It's not about the start, but it is about the relationship. And this word begotten is actually a compound word in John's Gospels that relate to this word in Psalm chapter 2. And it literally means the one of a kind. Quite simply put, to kind of distill it down to the father-son relationship, that means that Jesus is the only son. We know that. We get that. We understand that. But that means that there are no siblings of Jesus. There are no siblings. Sure, he had half-brothers, but there is no sibling of Jesus. Jesus is the unrivaled one. He is the unique one. We could say it this way. He is soul descent. That's what makes Jesus so special. Because just like human relationships, a father gives certain things to a son. It gives him the DNA, right? I have to watch my temper. It was my dad has a temper, right? I'm, I'm a sinner. I'm not going to blame it all on my dad. But, but I've learned or inherited a lot of the potential to have a temper. And I know that. I look like my dad and my mom. I cry, she in here today, like my mom. All right? That's the pastoral joke. Mondays, if I cry, they, they let me know about it. Right? I'm sensitive, like my mom. There's certain traits that I get from my parents. Well, Jesus gets the divine traits of his father. That's the whole point. Jesus has divine authority. Just like in Psalm chapter 2, if David was to be a king or if there was another king, what would happen, right? The son is respected in the same way and in the same manner that the father, the, the old king or the previous king was. 
It's not as much here, it's not as much about Jesus having a start because we know, the theologians call it eternal generation. Jesus was always God's son and always will be God's son. That's not the question. The question that is answered is what is he like? What makes this king so special? And it's the very fact that he is God's son, the only, in this sense, the only sole descendant. He has God's essence. He has God's DNA. Does that make sense? And so the Jews got it. In John chapter 5, the Jews got it. Just listen. He says, uh, for this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Why? Because he not only uh, was breaking the Sabbath, he healed on the Sabbath, I believe, at this point, but was also calling God his own father. What's the big deal? Making himself equal with God. That is the reality of the Father begetting the Son. He is equal with God. Okay, so what does that have to do with anything? Well, remember, Jesus has this divine attribute. And in a day and in an age where you and I can, can hop onto Amazon Prime and, 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 and comparison shop, I had this problem recently. Whenever we do a bigger purchase, it, it's stressful. And I think about it and I try to see, okay, is this the best thing to get? We have a birthday party coming up in our household and I haven't really spent much money of my own on, on, on our daughter and, and she's starting to get to the point where I, I want to give her something fun to have. Big. Right? So... I'm comparison shopping, and I'm looking to see, okay, you know, I could go high in price range. I could go low, but it's going to break. Okay, I'm going to go in the middle. Okay, so in the middle of the price range, what are all the options? What's the best bang for my buck? Is this the best thing? Is this the greatest thing? And in our culture, we comparison shop, don't we? You don't even have to leave your seat. You can comparison shop. Always searching for the next greatest, best thing. Teenagers do this all the time. They don't want their iPhone 10, they want their iPhone 12. Right? So do you, you just don't do it a little bit more sophisticated, like drop your phone on the ground so you have to get a new one. Right? We've caught on, we've caught on. But they, comp they comparison shop. That's what we're about. Always looking for the great, the next, the big. My friends, there is nothing greater than Jesus Christ. There is no one that has more divine authority than Jesus Christ. And if you're trying to fill something with your, of your life other than with Jesus Christ, you're always going to be on the search, the comparison shop, and it's always going to be left wanting the day after Christmas. Jesus Christ is is it. He is the one who is in charge and he has divine authority. Hebrews puts it this way. In Hebrews chapter one, it says, okay, is, 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 is Jesus Christ, how is he compared to the angels? 
And they quote, Psalm, and, the, and the author of Hebrews quotes or alludes to Psalm chapter 2 there. And he says, Jesus is greater than the angels. And then we go over to Hebrews chapter 5 and he says, okay, what about the high priests? And then he quotes Psalm chapter 2 and he says, Jesus is greater than the highest high priest. There is nothing greater than him. He has divine authority. He is the begotten from the Father. And so, therefore, he has the inheritance. Verse 8, all the nations are his inheritance. Those nations that raise their fist and want to rebel against him. All the possessions that they have on all the earth. Because he is the divine one. He is the one who is in charge. Well, what happens to those who do not recognize his authority? Right, look at verse 9. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and you shall shatter them like earthenware. You know, I looked into our trash can early this morning, and I didn't realize it, but looks like someone in our household, I won't tell you who it is, probably Sharla, broke a vase last night. That's, that's okay, we have too many of them. So, I'll still get her flowers, don't worry. Looked in, and, and there it was. And you know, I, I didn't come downstairs last night and see Charlotte getting a jackhammer out trying to <laughs> to that vase. No, in fact, Charlotte is pretty thrifty. She doesn't want to break things, I think. I'm pretty sure I, it was a nice vase. I don't think she didn't like it. I don't think it was her way of, me, uh, her, well, her way of saying, get me more flowers. I think, I think she probably just dropped it. It's fragile. It's earthenware. My friends, that is the raging nation. That is the fist to God. It is fragile. It has no strength. The rebel has no strength to God. There is no jackhammer needed, but look at what the Lord brings to the table. He doesn't bring a wooden staff or a wooden, wooden scepter or a wooden shepherd's crook. All those could be the, the term here. But as a king, he brings the most, the strongest material available at the time, iron. With great strength, with great resolve, he will shatter like dust those nations who rebel. This is significant in the New Testament for two reasons. Both of them come from revelation and the reality of the kingdom of God, the millennial kingdom. And afterwards, in Revelation chapter 2, I'll just read it. Please stick with me. I believe this is to the church in Thyatira. Jesus, remember, he's going around removing candlesticks, encouraging and saying, hey, remember, my, remember your first love, remember me. And he says in chapter 2 of Revelation, he says, he who ever overcomes, he's talking about to those in the church, and he who keeps my deeds until the end. And then he quotes this part of Psalm chapter 2. To him I will give authority over the nations and he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessel of the potter are broken to pieces. You know what's an amazing thought? Is the God of heaven 
gives the authority to do that to the kings and the nations of the earth. And then we fast forward to, 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 to the end of the world and we fast forward to the millennial kingdom and guess who is exercising the authority of the sun? We are. We are. You know, you weren't ready, were you? Like me. You are probably better than I was. When you first had your firstborn, right? You've got nurses, you've got doctors. They know what to do. I can remember the first night our daughter was choking. It seemed like she was choking and, she, and the nurse just calmly came in. Everything was okay. I'm over here. I'm in a mess. I don't know what to do. Is she alive? I didn't sleep the rest of that time. And then you're on your way home and you look at your wife. Your wife looks at you and he says, oh boy, what do we do now? Right? You can watch all the videos you want. You can read all the books you want, but it just does not matter. It doesn't. And yet somehow the responsibility grows you, doesn't it? Doesn't it? You didn't know what to do. You weren't ready for it. If you thought you were ready for it, you realized you weren't ready for it. And so the responsibility grows you, my friend. Let the reality that in the millennial kingdom, in the time to come after that, that you will exercise authority with the Son of God grow you in this dispensation right now. Live up to the authority that God is giving you. Now, what I'm not saying is going around and just kind of conk people on the head with an iron scepter. This dispensation, that's not going to work. You're going to get arrested. There's Romans 13. It's okay. Okay, but what I am saying is, what does your life look like? And how much allegiance do you have to the king of heaven versus the rebels who rise their fist to them? Does that make sense? So start to live with the responsibility and the authority that you've been given to come. God has divine authority. There's another application in, Romans, in Revelation chapter 2, but we're just going to have to skip that. And so we have his divine authority, the character traits of Jesus, the one who's in charge. And then lastly, we have the conduct towards the one in charge. And we just got to just hold on for a few more minutes and I, I promise to have you done here soon. What is the response for you, for me? What is the response for those who raise their fist to God? Well, before we look at the text, I want us to take a trip down 306 and I want us to, to look at all the churches and all their signs. We have all kinds of different churches down 306, right? You can start here and you can just keep on going that way. And there's a lot, a lot of churches, a lot of different churches. There's ritualistic and liturgical churches. There's contemporary churches. There's traditional churches. There's rock churches. There's, there's horse churches. There's, um, there is, there is. It's not 306, but it's there, right? Never been there. Probably would be fun, but I don't know how much worship I would do. Hey, let me tell you something. There's a lot of different churches. There are churches that even have signs that say, you want this kind of a service? Go here. This is casual. You want a contemporary service? Okay. You want a traditional service? Okay, go at this time. My friends, for you and for me, God, in this next verse, gives us, he declares how he wants to be worshipped. That's the conduct towards the one who's in charge. He will be worshipped. And he tells us how to worship him. 
He says, worship the Lord with reverence. Reverence. Which, by the way, is not the same as traditional. Worship the Lord with reverence. You know, many of you had a 4th of July picnic, right? If you were like our family, uh, you kind of showed up when you wanted to. You uh, put on whatever was comfortable. You may have worn flip-flops or no shoes at all. There was probably not a, it's probably a loose time in terms of when to eat, right? Whenever the food came off the grill or whenever you were hungry, you could kind of come and go as you please. There was no set agenda. There was no deliverables, right? That's pretty casual, right? Not too many of us got our grandma's china out for the 4th of July and plopped a big juicy hamburger on it. If you did, that's okay. That's your preference and that's what you want to do. That's what we did not do. But if you've ever been like me and had to be appear before a judge in court, it's vastly different, isn't it? You start by making sure that you look like you understand that this is a serious thing. Then you arrive to the courtroom on time and actually early enough to get a parking spot and be able to make your way to the courtroom, right? Because you, you don't want to be late to that. <laughs> then you rise when the bailiff says, all rise. And you're only spoken, you only speak when you've been asked to be, when, you, when you're spoken to, right? Very different. Very reverent. Reverent is honor. It's esteem. Casual is it's, you know, if it's going to happen, my chance, not done with much thought or effort. My friends, God asks us in this verse to worship the Lord with reverence which means that there is no choice of which service I should go to. There's only one, and it is the biblical reverence service. And I wish we had time to, to go into what that looks like. But at least I want to leave us with one thing that that does look like. It doesn't look casual, and it doesn't mean that there is no joy. Look at the verse. And rejoice with trembling. You see, God is a God who deserves our reverent worship, but our joy-filled worship because of what he's done and because who he is. When I go into the courtroom and I appear before the judge, make no mistake about it, I am not happy and I am not joy-filled and I don't want to be there. I am there out of obligation and some attend church because of obligation. And then others come to church like it's the 4th of July or like it's Sunday's big game. And I'm going to go, and if I come, and if I'm late, or when I come or leave or, or whatever, it is what it is, and it's inconsequential, and it's, it's, just, it's just whatever happens. My friends, that is not biblical worship. We esteem the sun, we homage the sun, we kiss the sun. And we make him, in terms of worship, our audience. No one else, 
nothing else, including ourselves. And so this morning we've seen the challengers of the one in charge. We've seen the characteristics of the one in charge and we've seen the conduct toward the one in charge. The the psalmist closes with this line. He says, how blessed are all who take refuge in him. And I want you to consider this. The worshiper takes refuge in him. But for the rebellious, they seek to take refuge from him. And they cannot find it. They have a raised fist and they fight and they roar and they rage. And ultimately, the one who is in charge will rule and reign and break everyone against him with an iron rod. The psalm started with a picture of a rebellious nation raising, nations, group of nations, raising their fists in God's face. But the only proper response to God's authority is the opposite. It's not a raised fist. It's a bowed knee. There are only two types of people in the psalm. Those who raised their fist against God and those who bow their knee to the one to the son who is in charge. Father, this morning I pray that you would, oh, for those who, who may be in this room that really are living a life with a raised fist towards you, Lord, use your word. Use the short time that we've had. And let them see that the invitation is to all nations to come and to respond and to submit and take refuge in him. And for those in this room that have made it their lives direction to bow the knee to their God, I pray that you would help us investigate any areas of our life where we we may take on their persona or the characteristics of those who raise their fists in rebellion. Oh Lord, I thank you for giving us this psalm and for how clear the New Testament presents it. And I pray that you would encourage us to take boldness against those who rage and to guard our own hearts with the responsibility that we have to exercise the authority that you've given to us through your son. Oh, go with us now and help us to continually live with a bowed knee and to worship you with reverence, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.